Good afternoon. You are listening to KZSC. It is Artists on Art. Um, I may not sound like Nada because I'm not Nada. I am Silvana Falcone and I am here subbing for Nada Milchkovic, who will be back in a few weeks. Um, we have a really exciting show for you today with two wonderful activists, artists, scholars. They have three identities. Um, John Jotaleanos and Claudia Lopez, who are both affiliated here with UCSC. The conversation today is really to center the lives of those who've been forcibly displaced and responses to that displacement through artistic mediums. And displaced is being broadly defined here. So displaced from mainstream U.S. history, displaced because of colonialism, because of social injustice, patriarchy, racism, and so forth. And so I think we're going to have a really wonderful conversation today about art as a decolonial tool and method, as a method that really speaks back to Eurocentrism and to Western power and hegemony. So thank you, John and Claudia, for being with us um, this hour. We're going to start with John. John Jotalianos is a mestizo animator and media artist focusing on critical convergences of history, memory, social space, and decolonization. Leanos is a 2012 Guggenheim Fellow and Creative Capital Foundation grantee who has received the United States Artist Fellowship, the San Francisco Art Commission Individual Artist Grant, the MAP Fund Award, and the Creative Work Fund Award. His work has been widely shown, including at the Sundance Film Festival, the Cannes Short Corner, PBS.org, the Whitney Biennial, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, the Museum of Contemporary Art, Chicago, and a variety of other art and public contexts. He's currently an associate professor in the Film and Digital Media Department here at UC Santa Cruz, where he's also the director of graduate studies for the Social Documentation Program. Welcome, John. Thank you. I always like to hear about people's journeys, life journeys. Mm -hmm. I'm just into that right now. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you became an artist and who or what were some of your early inspirations? Yeah, well, certainly. I, I mean, most of my inspiration have come through um, through reading and um, through consciousness. Um, I, I was looking for an outlet um, in my formative years and, and took up photography, and from there have kind of developed a uh, a way to engage in the social arena by through uh, any media necessary. So I've done um, photography performance, uh, art, public art installation, digital murals, installation in museums, um, and now animation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was finding when I was sort of preparing for the interview, um, you cannot be categorized. You are a very incredible, sort of wide-ranging artist, and you hit and work with a bunch of different kind of outlets and mediums, and so I'm so happy to be talking to you today. Um, can you describe maybe your artistic process today and mm -hmm. how you think it has changed over the years? Yes, certainly. Uh, I am a. Um, uh, I engage in public media, um, and I'm interested in um, establishing counter memory or historical memory within a, um, a, the the United States um, kind of his master narrative. So it, it is a, it is a way of, of engaging stories that are untold that are not necessarily um, part of the, um, the the canon in order in, in putting them in public and popular media. And um, I've used animation over the last decade or so to do that. And I've been influenced by Schoolhouse Rock um, um, animations, which has a pedagogy to it. And so, and so the work is really musical animations, um, but they are, they're telling stories um, that should be known to us, but have somehow strategically been uh, left out of our historical narrative. Um, in our memory, right? In our memory, yeah. exactly. So, mm. And so would you describe your artistic method as decolonial and maybe unpack that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, I think that, you know, you, you can look at... Um, how we understand um, a history and how our memory functions, and it is really socially produced. It is it is a, pro a production of like how we understand how we live in California, for example. Um, like we we have this narrative of um, a gold gold being discovered, um, people flooding to the to the region. A, some people getting rich, um, diverse people from Chile, China, coming together, establishing San Francisco overnight, and then that legacy of innovation still is with us, right? Innovation. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so with Hollywood and Silicon Valley as well. Um, 
but the problem is that we d- what we don't see or what we don't remember is the um, a, the California genocide of the Native um, Americans. We don't un- don't remember the lynchings of the Mexicans. We don't remember the, the the racial strife, the white supremacy, the entitlements that came with this this ideology of manifest destiny. So, um, and this, these are stories that are that have to be told. And have to be understood for, from us to to enact um, today. So part of the process is really is taking history and making it present in in a way um, that uh, engages people to shift their vision of of what what it means to be here, engaging in this place and space um, t- uh, as as, um, as as citizens, right, as settlers. Um, so you know, I, I told the story. I did a documentary animation um, about the Pueblo Revolt in New Mexico, which was, um, uh, as Joe Sando calls it, the Pueblo scholar calls it, the first American Revolution, right? 1680 revolt, and it is you know the, one of the moments where the the 99 percent expel the one percent. It is the real kind of it was a real occupation. They actually occupied the the governor's palace at Santa Fe. Um, and expelled the Spanish from the region and created this renaissance um, of a of of new um, artistic practices, um, uh, political uh, formations, communities um, that came together, um, which is for the the pueblo people of New Mexico and Arizona, um, a still the, the beginning of the modern period. So you know the, the fact that we don't know about this, the people don't know about this, is really striking to me. And, and, and then also we we can talk about the simultaneities of of of, of San Francisco Mission, uh, the Mission Dolores being founded in 1776, as the revolution is happening um, on the East Coast. Um, so uh, history has been told from east to west, um, never from north north to south or <clears throat> um, locally based. So what I'm what I'm trying to do is use a popular medium. Um, with music, um, cartoons, humor, and to engage an audience, a range of audience um, from a range of ages, to think about these histories in, in the present tense. I mean, that's what's striking to me about watching um, Frontera, Revolt and the Rebellion on the Rio Grande, which you're talking about. Um, because you did insert humor in this very sort of strategic and effective way for the viewer. And I found that to be a really, um, in many ways, sort of a decolonial method, because I think we often think about decoloniality as something um, intense, heavy. And I think there's some joy in that work. And I think some of that really comes out in in what you're doing. Could you talk a little bit, you know, because I, that was shown on PBS.org, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about um, why, like maybe some of the challenges you had? Because it is, an, it's you know, you, it was a 20-minute animated film, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it is a very complex story. So maybe what were some of the challenges in trying to do justice, if you will, to the people's, um, the ancestors? And, yeah, and certainly. It, it, you know, the, the Pueblo Revolt is a sacred story for the, for the Pueblo uh, Indians, uh, for, for the Native folks there. It is um, a, a story that, that, is, um, that, mark, that demarks a, the, the modern period and that lives on today, and, and they still ha- they, they have it as a living history. And, and so for an outsider, a California, a mestizo man with, with Native roots but not, not tribal-affiliated, to go in and, and connect, I, I, would have to, I, I really had to, um, to speak with and have got, uh, kind of anthropologist, anthropologist um, and native um, a, a artist to to help me along in representing. You know, representation is really at the center of of um, our problem when we come to when we're drawing um, uh, animations and cartoons. We have to think about what thing people look like, and we're all, we have this influence of what Hollywood um, has um, implanted into our brain, what an Indian looks like. So these are some of the challenges that we're, we're uh, engaged is, first of all, coming to um, the story um, a, and having to uh, to relate it in in a respectable way. And, and, and the goal really was for the, for the Pueblo people to enjoy it, for the Pueblo people to have to use it and to engage in dialogue for um, a multiple uh, multiple generations, and it is being used um, on, on the pueblos. It's been screened in, on on thirteen pueblos um, as of today, and it has it has kind of a life in in New Mexico and beyond. Um, and so, the, you know, the the challenges are um, as if as anything is entering into a story with respect. 
um, but also um, trying to get the uh, the details, um, the thousands and thousand and one details, and put them in a time-based piece where we're, we're kind of te- telling a narrative. So that you know, we did mounds of research um, on it, um, archival, oral histories as well. But um, uh, we we could only we, we can we layer it in um, with visuals and mapping and and different uh, character based um, kind of narr- narr- narrators. Um, one of the things that I, that I was interested in is um, that the stories all stories have multiple perspectives, right? It's kind of this Rashomonic way of looking at history, um, and so the, the the piece has four or five narratives narrators rather. And so there's there's a witness of a of a horned serpent. There there are various narrators. There's, there's a rap song in it as well, um, and so we're trying to to embody that that the, this kind of theory that history cannot be told from one perspective um, a, by by telling it from from a variety and hopefully hoping that there, there there's a crossing um, even though it is within a linear um, uh, yeah um, film right twenty minutes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what was so effective was the sort of. Um, Ignored to the generational memories, right? Mm-hmm. The plurality of that I thought was so effective in in that film. The thing I really appreciated um, in learning and reading more about the film and viewing it was this really collaborative process that you engaged in with Chicano artists and Native American artists, mm-hmm. and um, and really U.S. Mexico borderlands artists mm-hmm. in in a in a real uh, clear way. Can you talk about? Um, how to, how you form this collaboration for the film, um, and why the Pueblo Revolt? Maybe a little bit more about why the Pueblo Revolt had to involve sort of these organic collaborative actors in it form in its production. Yeah, well, um, well, certainly, you know, the the um, the animation process is a complex one. Most of the animation that we see on, on television and, and in the films is being um, produced here, but then sent off to these kind of third world countries where these sweat, animation sweatshops are happening. So we we really did want to reproduce that model, and and it is and it takes you know thousands of drawings and 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 a lot of work and coloring and and animating and moving to make it happen. So uh, we. We we tried to compromise and, and have it locally based, um, and so I've been working with artists, a lot of them not trained as animators, um, to um, to develop these scenes and to develop characters, and it's it, it was a struggle at certain times. But then, working with a native artist, they c- could tap into a certain aesthetic mm-hmm. that they um, that that is you know present um, in their in in their upbringing that that we could also. Um, it developed. So, you know, the, and getting influences um, from the native artists, like, you know, well, what, you know, when Pope, the leader of the revolt, uh, emerges from his kiva with a vision of a, of a revolution, what does that look like? And so asking the, the artists, what the Pueblo artists who have grown up with this story, what does that look like to you? And, and, and then collaborating and figuring out how to illustrate and also tell that story. So um, that's one of the examples. I think um, uh, the I worked with uh, Aimee Villarreal, Villarreal, who is a anthropology student um, here, a graduate of, of UC Santa Cruz, um, also a local New Mexican scholar, um, who really helped me plug into people um, in in the community. Conroy Chino, who is from the Acomo Pueblo, Warren Montoya, who is also from Santa Clara. Um, and Lee Mokino. Uh, so we really had um, a lot of input um, around the script, around the formation of the story. Um, and also for me, it was, it was a, because we talk about not having memory, right? Here in, in the West Coast, we don't have memory about uh, of what, how this land came to be and what happened before the Americans arrived, right? It's um, magic, apparently. It's magic, yeah. yeah. So, I, so, you know, for me, it was really, it took me a long time to read and figure out what happened, um, how it happened, who the, col- uh, the colonizers were, who Unyate was, how it ha- what, what was, you know, what was happening simulta- simultaneously while, while this was going on in the, in the timeline of history. And, and so that, you know, and now we're working on the, the follow-up, which is the California story, the California missions, um, the, um, the gold rush. And, and there's the same process of what it's, there's, we don't really know. I don't really know what happened. However, the the evidence is all there. It's like laying on the ground for us, for 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 us to pick up, and put together. And so it's the it's not hard knowledge to come by. It's just that it is, 
it's a little bit hidden, right? It's so we kind of have to lift up a rock and look under or, you know, open a book and talk to folks as well. Um, so oral histories are important um, and, um, a, as, as well as in developing the narrative. You know? You're listening to Artists on Art, and we are talking to John Jota Leanos, a mestizo animator and media artist focusing on critical convergence of history, memory, and social space. He is an associate professor here in the Film and Digital Media Department at UC Santa Cruz, as well as the Director of Graduate Studies. So he's telling us a little bit about his current project, the California Missions, and I wanted to ask... Are you working with the same artists as Frontera or are these different artists that you are trying to collaborate with? And I think the reason I want to sort of unpack a little bit more the collaboration piece of it is because of the real intentionality behind, um, you know, kind of as the intentionality is part of your artistic mm-hmm. also a method and approach. Certainly, yeah. We, I am working with some of the um, uh, similar artists. Most of them will be on the musical side. I'm, I'm interested in developing more of a musical animation. Uh, if you watch Frontera, there is one kind of rap song that happens, and it does have music throughout. But um, with the you know the popularity of Hamilton, the musical, and I, I've developed kind of musical animations in the past, it seems to me that it would be um, a, a lot of fun to have the whole piece be a, a musical animation. Um, so uh, working with uh, Greg Lando and um, uh, Cristobal Martinez, who are both musicians, um, and their kind of network of folks, right? We worked with um, um, uh, Deuce Eclipse um, from Bang Data, Oakland-based uh, East Bay um, popular band, and we um, will probably be working with him again and other others as well. So um, yeah, we're, we're you know we're and I'm look, looking at indigenous California um, um, uh, artists as well to be able to represent the subtleties of um, a character, right? Because when you draw um, a person um, and you draw them in a context, there are certain uh, details um, for for which um, native folks will, would only know, and so it is kind of tapping into those, I think. Um, Different layers, or different. It's kind of, I see it like it as a video game. If you if you have like like a superpower that you've engaged or found, then you can get to the different level or what have you. And so that's that's like watching our film is kind of like that. If you see certain things that target that that are targeted towards you, you seen, then you can, you have this different understanding or a deeper understanding of mm. of what is being visually represented. So you kind of lost me at video games, but then you got me back <laughs> when you <laughs> described it. But I get what you're saying. Um, so you also obviously um, talked about music, and so you also create your own music. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, I would love to see if we can maybe listen to one of um, your songs. Why don't we listen to Ojo por Ojo, and you can talk a little bit about mm-hmm. what this is being used for. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, maybe also talk a little bit about music as we had addressed earlier um, in an earlier conversation about music as a form of community engagement. So Mm -hmm. let's take a listen to Ojo por Ojo. Sixteen seventy-five, El Rio Grande, in crisis, abusive lives. Los soldados y los padres abusando a las madres del pueblo. Miro para arriba, miro sangre en el cielo. Mataron al curandero, quemaron mi kiva, mi vida le vale huevo. But I was born a rebel, el conquistador, the Spanish Inquisition, the cities of gold, the murderous mission. Can't practice my culture, destroyed by a vulture, forced into hunger. A gun sounds like thunder. Indigenous accused. Now how long will this last? When the Kachina dances. Viewed as witchcraft, revolt in secret, rebellious we get. Massacre my people, we gon' make you regret. Revolution is the solution. No oppression, freedom the lesson. Inquisition, power position. But we are blessed in the ways of the legends. Revolution is the solution. No oppression, freedom the lesson. Inquisition, power position. But we are blessed in the ways of the legends. Obey had the vision in the people. You were listening to Ojo por Ojo, uh, 
created by John Hotelianos, who we are here in the studio talking to. Um, so can you tell us what that song is for? What um, what uh, artwork you're using that one for? Yes, sir, certainly. That, that, that song is, is placed in Frontera, the, um, the documentary animation about the Pueblo Revolt um, that happened in the 17th century um, in the southwest and what is now New Mexico and Arizona. And it really, uh, the song fits in, uh, it, it, it kind of sits, settles in after we tell the story about the Spanish colonists and it talks, it tells, it reveals the history of the, um, the Pueblo Revolt, what happened, um, and um, the kind of crisis that the Pueblo people um, understood or, or were faced with in order to, that brought them to the brink of, of revolution. Um, so yeah, it is, a, it is that, and it also has um, in the animation, there's a, a, a graphic novel uh, style um, a, a narrative that happens as well. So you can read certain things that are happening while listening to a narr- narrator. So you're, you're reading the narration, but also listening to another one that's happening, that, and they're somehow connected. Um, so, yeah, that was the idea of kind of the multivocality of, of the piece is trying to d- develop, um, use rap, um, use uh, music to engage in um, multiple ways of, of seeing the story. Mm-hmm. So is this what you mean when you say music is a form of community engagement, or do you think of it that, that connection differently? Well, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think music is is an art form that is has transformative potential. Um, you know, uh, all of us have sat down and listened to certain music mu- musical pieces and and have had emotional, transformative, intellectual, spiritual, <laughs> you know, uh, 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 moments, right? And so I think that 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 art that art form really definitely kind of gets um, people. Um, moving, it, it gets, it, it has potential to, to speak to it. I think a different center in us and, and enter into our, into our intellectual heart or spirit or what have you in a different way. Um, so yes, I, I think that music is is a great way to engage the um, a, a transformative idea of of art. And it gets back to this kind of thematic of memory, right? Um, Mm. When you hear an old music and you're like, Mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, I remember that from high Mm -hmm. school and blah, blah, blah. For sure. (laughs) All those memories come flooding back. Sometimes some good, sometimes not so good. (laughs) Um, I wanted to talk about the very humorous animated PSA you did called Evil White Foods. Mm. Um, It actually got me rethinking about my own food intake, quite frankly, but we'll talk about that (laughs) at another time. So it's a real critique about empty calories that many of us consume without thinking twice and how these empty calories are really replacing healthy and colorful foods. Who was the audience for the PSA and how was it received? Yeah, we were uh, commissioned to do um, a PSA for the LA bus system and and on the buses there are video screens um, where um, people where PSAs um, um, come up, uh, information and bus line information as well, and we were, we were also told that the uh, the audio might not work all the time on all of the lines, so we really made it a visual piece. Um, and it, the the theme of of it of the commission was um, health, and we were thinking about the people who access the buses in in LA, and there are mostly people of color in impoverished um, communities as well. And so we thought about um, a, a issues of colonialism and how that has affected. Um, our food intake and what we what we eat and how we eat and the, the, the things that are, are 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 given to us or provided for us as kind of option, healthy options, right? And so we thought, you know, salt, um, sugar, salt, and white flour were kind of three um, evil white foods that we, that we <laughs> wanted to uh, kind of target. But we also kind of um, made it draw, drew a parallel to uh, white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. And so. You know, we have, um, you know, vegetables burned at the stake um, um, with the cross being burned and then with like white crackers um, around the, um, you know, around the, 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 the cross. And so, you know, it, it is a way in which we're, we're trying to kind of pl- uh, play with this idea that, that the, the, these poor food choices are part of a colonial legacy. And for us to um, to break out of them, we might w- want to uh, think about different choices. So yeah, so the, the message of the piece is you know eat multicolored foods. Well, I love the name Sinister Salt, Psycho Sugar, Ellsbury Doughboy. How did you come up with those names? 
<laughs> well, it was a uh, you know, even white foods was something that we were doing in between uh, uh, Frontera. So we were working on this long twenty minute piece, and we were just trying. To, it was kind of a our, our comic relief. Um, so we were just kind of coming up with ways and um, to characterize uh, what salty would be like, and you know, what's, very what's, yeah, what sugar would be like, very psycho, right? So we've <laughs> all been there, right? We've all been there. The so, crash of sugar, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And Ilsbury Doughboy is kind of like you know. Um, uh, if, you know, uh, yeah, just kind of an evil Southern um, white supremacist. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of you know no, no colored food signs and <laughs> so yeah, it, it was a way in which we can we could uh, draw these parallels between white supremacy. Yeah, what I thought about it too is it would like the kids would look at this right. Mm-hmm. They would it would really capture their attention and I think they would get a lot of kick you know kick out of the the names and stuff. It looks like we have it. Up and we're going to play a little clip for it. Well, it can be seen online. Oh, you can see it online. Um, and can you? Why don't you tell folks where they can see many of your um, visual pieces? Yeah, sure. The best place to see uh, uh, the um, the animation that we've been talking about is on Vimeo, which is v i m e o dot com. It's like an alternative YouTube Vimeo. And if you, uh, or you can Google uh, Frontera um, uh, plus my last name, L-E-A-N-O-S, Leaños, L-E-A-N-O-S, and it should come up from Vimeo, and you can see various, you can see Evil White Foods, a piece that we did ABCs, we did a piece on children rhymes called um, Dead Time Stories with Mariachi Goose and Friends, so there are a variety of um, little animations, Rascuache, um, Chicano-based native animations. Um, well, I think to sort of wrap it up, um, I, our time flew by, and I really enjoyed um, this conversation. Why don't you tell folks what you're working on? I know you just come back from Denver, and is that the that's not, is that the California Missions Project, or is this a different project in the Denver? Yeah, it's really. Area? I'm doing an animation installation in the Denver Art Museum. It's related to it, and it's called, it's called a man, a, a, a Destiny's Manifest, and it is really a taking on um, gas American progress painting and, and looking at it from. A, a decolonial perspective to see what was there um, and imagine what was th- how the indigenous um, mestizo people um, saw this inevitable, uh, you know, uh, idea of manifest destiny, which really was an ideology which enabled um, the genocide of of the the, Calif- the Californian and other Indians as well. And when will that exhibit be opening? It's in February uh, 2017. And you've been you've been having to go out regularly now, right, to, to get it ready? Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. These things take time. They do. <laughs> well, you are listening to John Leanos. I want to really thank you so much for coming and chatting with us about your work. It's oh, really quite um, it's quite breathtaking. So I, I'm really thankful for you to, to come and share with us. Why don't we play um, your other song? Lamento Desaparecido. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Um, and what is this one for? Uh, this was part of a, um, a mariachi opera that we toured around, and it is a, a lament to the, dis- the disappeared, the desaparecido, the, the, the women who have disappeared on the border, crossing the border, or in Juarez um, due to globalization. And um, it is it has been written by a group, um, a mariachi group called uh, Los Cuatro Vientos out of Tucson, Arizona. Great. Take a listen.
Hi, you're listening to KZSC. Tune into the Busy Bee every Tuesday from noon to one and hear local business owners share the secrets to their success. I am Silvana Falcone, and I'm here guest hosting for Artists on Art, and now I'm very happy to bring to you our next artist, activist, scholar, Claudia Lopez. Uh, Claudia Lopez is a native of the Bay Area. She is a community organizer working on a range of topics in the local area, from migrant rights, labor, education, and women of color solidarity. At the moment, Claudia is finishing her dissertation in sociology at UC Santa Cruz, which examines the lives of internally displaced farmers in Colombia. The photo exhibit, which is what she's going to talk about today, is called Expulsion. It's a collective project between four women of color, all activists and some academics, who wanted to use the visual medium of photography to show the global connections between different forms of forced migration, highlighting the lives of those directly affected by displacement. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you very much. So, Claudia, this photo exhibit was shown in San Francisco over the summer, right? Are there plans to hopefully bring this to Santa Cruz? Absolutely. So I was just at the Museum of Art and History yesterday, and we're going to have a, the next show will be October 6th at 630. Um, I would invite everybody, not only from the UCSC community, but the larger Santa Cruz community. It'll be a wonderful event. It is going to feature um, professor, uh, a professor, Bridget Anderson, who is is from the University of Oxford's um, Center on Migration Policy and Society, and she's doing an opening keynote address for the UC Santa Cruz Andrew Mellon Foundation John E. Sawyer Seminar on Non-Citizenship. Sorry, it's a long long title. title. Um, But what's going to be really fabulous about this keynote, it's going to kick off a year-long seminar through the Chicano Latino Research Center, headed by Director um, Kat Ramirez, yourself as well, and some other fabulous <laughs> professors and really looking at forced migration um, right now in the fall on labor and precarity in the winter and on migrant citizens and denizens in um, the spring. So I think it's going to be just a fabulous, um, not only um, keynote, but event that's open to the community free. There's food. And I will be presenting also the exhibit on expulsion. Wonderful. So that's October 6th. Mm-hmm. And we'll be sure to keep announcing that. Um, um, now, the photo exhibit is focused on four or five sites. I know Colombia, India, Mexico, and the, the United States, and the Philippines. Yes. Okay. So can you tell us maybe a little bit about how that collective and collaborative process came to be? Absolutely. So I just to preface is that I actually came to the university start, because I thought I was wanted to do photography. And then I took a GE class in sociology, and here we are. <laughs> So throughout the time, um, I I went to the field in 2014 to do about a year of field work in Colombia, and I borrowed my daughter's iPhone. And I began, as I was going in, I work in the peripheries, taking pictures, and I really wanted to subvert the narrative of displaced people as solely victims, particularly women. And so as I was seeing these pictures of people, particularly uh, farm work or farm uh, peasant farmers, that they were using their skills to resettle in this fabulous, powerful way. Um, Many were now single um, head of household mothers with their children, but they were rebuilding um, using their rural skills um, that I thought, wow, this needs to be shown. This this sort of um, kind of force and, and struggle, but in this positive way, saying that they're not victims, these are survivors. And we really need to think about this in a way um, beyond just in the global south. And so in that year, we had the Syrian refugee crisis began, gentrification um, here in the Bay Area. Um, a lot of people in San Jose, for example, where I live, were getting saying, I can't live here anymore. Where do I go? And then also at the same time during that year, we had the flows of Honduran unaccompanied minors. And so all these forms that I said, this is displacement. Displacement is not just from conflict over there in the global south, but I wanted to see how I could make these connections between what was going on over there and what was going on really right here in in, uh, California, in Santa Cruz, in the Bay Area. So I came back and I had like 20,000 pictures and I go to my friends um, who are also activists and artists and I said, what can we do? What can we do to put these all in conversation? Um, My friend Anu um, does 
did the brought in the photographer the photos from India um, and really looking at development induced displacement in India but it was internal so both her and I look at internal displacement but then we were looking at the people like Pawis which is the Filipino Association of Workers and um, and immigrants here in the Bay Area they were doing a lot of work around wage theft around my um, immigration reform here looking at Filipino care workers and really looking at how they dealt with what they felt was displacement from their families and also that process of social reintegration here in the States. Another friend, um, Amalia, is doing work with the Coalition of Street Vendors in San Jose, most who are Mexican, most who do not have papers, and most who do not have the money to get permits to be um, street vendors. So they began organizing around them and their, their right to not feel displaced from the economy. So I was really inspired by Saskia Sassen's book, Expulsions, where she thought of expulsions not solely from place, but that as part of a process of expulsion from place, economy, even nature, and the way I'm thinking about itself. Mm. Why was it important that four women of color do this project? That's a really great great question. I think (laughs) all four of us are either migrants or um, children of migrants. Uh, of immigrants, and we felt that it was particularly important to show um, the the real life perspective of the people who were living this, and not only show them, as I said before, as victims, but as active agents in their own um, in their own lives. And so, showing pictures of Bowie's members, care workers, that how you know having fun on vacation, and showing them not just as workers, not just as part of a global migrant flow, but actually real people that were doing this work. Um, And then as women, I think that we're also artists and activists and some academics being able to put us all in conversation as we were talking about different perspectives of history that were coming together to help the amnesia, right? The amnesia of um, the roots of this displacement. And um, why was it important to portray gentrification happening in the U.S. as a form of expulsion? Because I think that's actually a different framework or a new framework to think about displacement here in the U.S. If you could maybe unpack a little bit more why the framework of expulsion when we're talking about U.S. gentrification. Yeah, absolutely. I feel that... um even in the work in India and my work in Colombia, we saw that expo- like the um, displacement of, of the peasants was went hand in hand. Uh, most of them were relocating in the cities. Ninety, like for example, in my case, ninety percent of Colombian peasants resettle in the city. So, but the city now represents a new site <laughs> where the global market is really pushing. renovation, right, renewal, and urban rebirth, particularly in a city like Medellin, like myself, that in the 80s was classified as the homicide capital of the world, and now 2013 won the award of most innovative city in the world, 2014 most sustainable in the city, right, all those keywords. Um, And so we see the same thing happening here in the Bay Area, right, as uh, John was talking to, it's sites of innovation, but it just changed what, what are the mechanisms of how it's being developed. So in this way, looking at gentrification as a form of expulsion really rings true, not just here in the Bay Area, but globally, right? The same things are happening. If you look at, for example, I'd like to, um, um, if, if people check out the Anti-Gentrification Mapping Project, which is really, uh, you can check it out online. There they have actual narratives of people who've been displaced from the Mission District, for example, in San Francisco. And if you listen to, for example, my interviews, the exact same kind of sentiments come out mm-hmm. of feeling uprooted, of the loss, um, of loss of nostalgia, of links, of of um, of culture, cultural loss, of feeling, where do I go now? How do I reroute was something that really through all these, I heard the same threads of, um, of sentiment. Well, I know, John, you live in San Francisco, and I used to live there. So I feel that this term dis- expulsion is really appropriate for what's happening in the Bay Area, because expulsion also signals a disappearance. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know uh, what you've seen kind of happening in your neighborhood, John, um, with the gentrification and displacements happening 
in yeah. San Francisco. Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, I, th- I think that you know the first movement of gentrification was the gold rush, right? And mm. and, and there has been kind of legacies of of, of re- removal of peoples and uh, through economic means and through genocidal means as well. But uh, what we're seeing today in San Francisco is just a, a rapid influx of massive capital um, and the and people being. Um, a, um, strategically displaced through landlords who are who, who are just trying working loopholes to get them out of the um, their their neighborhoods. There have been four fires over the last year and a half in on major buildings um, and that are very suspect. Um, and so there's been an investigation, a firing of the arson investigator at the San Francisco um, City Hall. And so, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, – it, it all, all comes down to greed. And what you're talking about, uh, um, about Lisa, is the, the idea of, um, a, of displacement being – when people are uh, evicted from their house in San Francisco, they cannot move anywhere else. They have to be they're, – they're, ex, they're expelled, they're expelled, right, yeah. from, from right. the whole city. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is, it is um, um, that loss is is heavy. Loss of community, loss of place, loss of space, loss loss of of, of um, kind of a, a way of engaging in your your own life, right? right? So, exactly. I remember when I lived in San Francisco, the the displaced city was Oakland, and now mm-hmm. Oakland's not the displaced city. Oh, you know, now people. This is why I'm saying this framework. I think is really really. Uh, p- critical to think about displaced expulsion as erasure, um, because I think a lot of people are like, I have no idea where people are going. Um, now, your contribution to the photo exhibit was on uh, based in Colombia, right? The Colombian displacement happening um, specifically for peasant farmers. Did you find it hard though to capture the kind of holistic um, complexity that you're sort of ta- that you're talking about in terms of their experience in the, in a photograph? Like how? difficult was it to sort of manage that? Um, I think that's a really good question because you can take a picture and you meant it in some way as a photographer or an artist, um, but if it's not explained, people can take it however they want. Um, So that's why I felt it is really important, at least for myself as an activist, as an artist, as an academic, that they are in conversation. So when I present my work, for example, if I do a presentation or um, I always bring my pictures in. um, And I think that being able to show someone and paint those social dimensions is really powerful, right? I think about when I was a child, I used to go to the library and look through National Geographic magazine, going, wow, look at these pictures. I didn't even know you don't see that on TV, right? I was like, wow, this is another world. And really being able to paint that for other people and say, this is a reality, though it may not be yours. We are still connected in the fact that this is happening in the world. So is it complex to really take one picture and say that you could capture it all? Yeah, but I think that's part of the artistic process, right? Um, that That's why you just don't take one picture or paint one uh, animation or, or, or compose one song. It's part of a longer conversation. Mm-hmm. And just to sort of put this in some context, I was looking for some of the more recent statistics around um, displacement. And we're talking, you know, the UN Refugee Agency is saying we have 65.3 million people have been displaced around the world. 21.3 million of them are refugees, 10 million stateless people, um, and nearly 34,000 people every single day are being forcibly displaced as a result of conflict or persecution. Yes. So this is just an enormous, enormous issue um, that you're sort of talking about. And the numbers I find just incredible to sort of process. Very incredible. Think about it. Of course, Syria is number one in refugees and internal displacement, but Colombia is number two internal displacement in the world. So I think people, that's a little over 12% of the population. So um, I don't know if uh, you know, but August 29th, just a couple of days ago, uh, Colombia and the long-running um, guerrilla group, the FARC, finally came to a peace accord, uh, a ceasefire. Um, my question now is, how do we heal a country haunted by so much trauma? Right. If we're really thinking about peace, and I'm thinking this around the world, not just in Colombia, but if we're really thinking about peace, how do we open up peoples to be able to live aside their victimizer? Right. Or, um, now we're going to have people um, kind of battling for the same resources in the same cities. Um, and so how do we think about that um, 
at the same time thinking about things in urban areas like urban development. Um, how do we, um, yeah, how do we resettle these folks in a way that really can think about peace for the first time? I think this is the question haunting actually all of Latin America right. and probably the Americas in general. Um, you're listening to Claudia Lopez. She's a native of the Bay Area, and she is part of a collaborative women of color group who put together a photo exhibit called Expulsion. Um, and we are here t- talking and listening more about um, about the work that she did uh, as part of that photo exhibit. Um, now, you mentioned the Syrian crisis because obviously one of the things that has gone viral is that photo of that young Syrian boy um, and people saying things like, oh, this photo, maybe this will change the conversation. And whether or not it does is, is sort of a sec- the secondary part of the question. But but that to me spoke to really the power of photography, right? That it can, and, and it sort of also co- goes back to John's kind of work too about the ways in which this transformations can happen. Um, so there's a clear power to photos, right? There's a clear power here in um, telling these narratives of injustice. So what, could you maybe talk a little bit about m- more what you wanted viewers to take away from the photos you took that could not be conveyed in a written text? Absolutely. So the photos I took um, come from, I call the series, The Last House on the Hill, um, because they were taking with a woman who uh, was a displaced peasant woman, and she literally lives on this sector, the last house on the hill, this where the peri-urban, or, you know, where the countryside meets the city edges. And she has resettled there over the last eight years. And what I wanted to show in these pictures, we have one where she's standing in front of the house with her, um, with her child, Another one where she's leaning over and you can see the city behind her. Another one where you also see some suspicious fires had happened a couple days before I showed up because already she had been telling me the authorities have been coming almost every day to tell me that they want to knock down my house because they want to build a pedestrian walkway for tourists up here. And she said, how are they going to do that? When um, I live here, I've been real. She said, if you see a peasant farmer in the city, it's not because they want to be there. It's because they had no choice but to be there. She goes, for me, this is a second displacement that's going on. And so what I really wanted to show in those pictures was um, her strength. But also at the same time, in a lot of the development narratives um, in literature, they talk about, oh, these peasant farmers coming into the city, they ha- their skills are of no use here. And what I really wanted to show was without her rural skills, she would have not been able to resettle and make this really nice house over the last eight years. And so really kind of also subverting what do we see as valuable capital? Right, human and cultural is really important because in this case, if she didn't know, know how to plant her own garden and grow her own food and be able to build her own, you know, house, I think that um, we would miss the the strength behind that. Yeah, which I'm trying to show in those pictures. Yeah, so you guys are really offering this very rich sort of counter narrative um, to sort of dominant tropes or dominant narratives about. Migration, um, sort of as a way to wrap up because we're almost out of time too. So sad. Um, what are some of the general misunderstandings that you feel people have about migration um, and its mm. causes that you are hoping your photo exhibit is contesting or countering? Absolutely. I, I want to bring into conversation this idea of choice. Um, and why people decide to leave as if it um, is an individual choice um, that someone just wants a quote-unquote better life, but thinking that that just means a better job. I think that oftentimes is... Like people like Trump think, oh, they just want to come over here and and suck. Not, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry to bring that into the conversation. Sorry, let's sorry. not talk about him. But you know who, right? But uh, what I wanted to say with that is often it's it's seen as a individual choice of someone who just wants a quote unquote better life, and really showing that that there is um, a global logic around these expulsions for those who cannot basically, if you cannot create capital, you can't play. You're, mm-hmm. Right, you get with this uh, savage sword, and get pushed to the edge. And so, what I really want to show is how people are pushed to the edge, both physically, right? There, people are resettling on the peri-urban edges, but at the same time, um, it's a psychological uh, periphery as well. And so, from that, really challenging migration um, in this way that it is part of the same flows, but it is a structural issues and forces that really are pushing, squeezing people out. Everything from the Honduran 
children, uh, unaccompanied migrants, um, children who are saying, their families say, we want you to survive, and here you cannot because the gang's uh, violence is too great. The Syrian refugees, at the same time, having to leave because they cannot exist there anymore, literally. Um, and then from my case, conflict, but at the at the name of what? It goes beyond just guerrilla fighters because we know multinational um, industries are trying to go in there and they use paramilitaries to force them out. So in a nutshell, understanding beyond the individual choice, but actually looking at the structural forces that push them out. Yeah, there's always structural forces at play, right? It's never just, you know, like I always tell my students, it's not like people go one day and go, let me move mm. to another country just because that's fun to do. Right. There's obviously a lot of, it's a painful choice for Absolutely. actually the majority of people who are being sort of, uh, you know, who are being forcibly displaced for a whole host of reasons. Um, well, thank you so much. Tell people again when um, your exhibit is coming into town. Sure, absolutely. The next exhibit is October 6th at 6.30 at the Museum of Art and History. Please come down for the keynote speaker, Bridget Anderson, um, on her talk, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Citizenship and the Politics of Exclusion. Well, you were listening today um, on Artists on Art to uh, Claudia Lopez and to John Jotelianos. I want to thank both of you again for coming. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I think um, you gave us a tremendous amount of things to think about in terms of the artistic process and the artistic medium. I don't know if you guys have any kind of final comments you'd like to say. No, I'm just really excited to be on this show and um, just invite anybody, if they want to continue this conversation, to please um, email me. Can I give my email address? Absolutely. Uh, my email address is clmlopez at ucsc.edu. And uh, real quick, I want to say happy birthday to my dad, Jay. <laughs> uh, happy birthday, Jay. <laughs> happy birthday, Jay. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Silvana, for, for bringing up these important issues. And, and if you want to contact me, you can contact me at jleanos at ucsc.edu. It's J-L-E-A-N-O-S at UCSC.edu. Thank you all. Thank you guys Thank so you. much.